Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 26th, 2019. I'm Brian Cardile, and this is the Daily Journal's weekly podcast regarding major legal issues being fought out in California and federal appellate courts. This week we'll cover an appeal in the Ninth Circuit, but it's one that, as happens with increasing regularity, began outside the courtroom in the quasi-judicial forum of arbitration. And it's a case that at least one side argues identifies a problematic incentive that jeopardizes a core element of arbitration that is a a neutral's impartiality. More specifically, the dispute arose from a broken contract between the beverage company Monster Energy and its distributor, City Beverage. The parties sent the matter to arbitration per terms of their agreement to the neutral company Jams and to a retired California judge, John W. Kennedy. Monster got the better end of Kennedy's decision, but City Beverage complained in federal court that the arrangement was unfair because Kennedy owned a partial equity stake in Jams. He's one of around 100 arbitrators there that do. Because Monster is a big company that brought many of its disputes to Jams, City Beverage argued that Kennedy was incentivized to keep Monster's repeat business coming back to the company that Kennedy partially owned. That, City Bev claimed, created at least the possibility of bias and the company argued it was something that should have been disclosed prior to the party's arbitration. Kennedy and Jams did offer a disclosure describing that Jams neutrals in general had an interest in the continuing viability and profitability of the company, but the notice did not mention Kennedy's equity stake in particular. Earlier this month, the Ninth Circuit heard arguments on the matter, and on today's show, as usual, we'll present you with a couple of competing arguments. First, we're happy to welcome on JAM's Chief Legal Officer and a Senior Vice President, Kimberly Taylor. Then I'll welcome on Professor Catherine Stone from UCLA School of Law, who authored an amicus brief in the case arguing the arbitration award in favor of Monster should be vacated. Before welcoming on our guests, just a couple of quick notes. Don't forget that as usual, CLE credit is available to listeners of this show and is very easy to claim. After listening to the podcast, just go to dailyjournal.com, find our podcast library, look for a link to a short true-false test on the page where this show appears, and once you've completed that, one hour of California CLE credit can be yours. We very much appreciate the listeners that go and find those to help them keep up to date with their CLE credits because, uh, for one thing, it keeps the uh, state bar off your back and also helps us keep this podcast outside of our usual paywall. Also, don't forget to find us in the various streaming portable places where you tend to find this kind of media, like Apple Podcast and other podcast apps, to search for Weekly Appellate Report or Daily Journal, and you should find us there. Okay, Kimberly Taylor is the Chief Legal and Operations Officer for JAMS and a Senior Vice President there. She joins us now. Ms. Taylor, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for having me. Okay, so before uh, diving into some of the competing arguments and, and indeed the, the oral arguments that were given in this case before the Ninth Circuit earlier this month. I was hoping to start with the, the broad strokes of the issue and have you describe as you see it from your and Jam's perspective, the, the legal question in the framing of this case. So as, as you see it, how would you describe the, the case and the question at issue here? Well, I think I'd like to start by clarifying um, some things that have been misreported or perhaps misunderstood in order to put this in perspective. And so I'm going to give you some uh, general information about how JAMS operate that I think is um, important for the listener to understand is very different from uh, a law firm or another kind of corporate structure. Um, So while JAMS, we're not involved in the post-arbitration proceedings here, including the appeal, but I understand that the argument is being made that the arbitrator in this case had a pecuniary interest in ensuring that Monster Energy Company prevailed in the arbitration 
because otherwise jams might lose an ongoing business relationship with the company. And that is simply not true. Jams has never solicited business from Monster Energy Company. We don't have a contract with them. Many parties name Jams as their arbitration provider in the dispute resolution clauses of their contracts, but we don't ask them to notify us when they do that. And we typically don't know that, they, that we've been named in an arbitration clause until a dispute arises. And that's especially true in negotiated commercial business-to-business contracts, like in this case. I'm aware that it's been reported, perhaps in um, some of the briefs that were filed, that Monster Energy Company has submitted approximately 100 matters to JAMS during a five-year period. But during that same time, JAMS administered over 65,000 matters. So the amount of revenue attributed to Monster Energy or any, any other company is a tiny fraction of our overall business. We have 400 neutrals on our panel currently, 128 of them are owners. Each owner owns an equal share in the company. We don't operate like a law firm where a partner earns additional revenue credit for the creation and retention of customer relationships. When we set up our business structure, we were very deliberate to ensure that there was no financial incentive for any neutral to favor one side or another in any dispute. And the reality is that our neutrals' future business depends on their and JAM's reputation for neutrality. If they're perceived to unfairly favor a particular company or law firm, their reputation in the legal community would suffer and they would lose business. And neutrals are invited to become shareholders based on achieving a total annual revenue amount that applies to everyone and is not tied in any way to a particular company or law firm that uses JAM services. We also don't accept third-party funding, so there's no external undue influence for profit. And then another important point is that shareholders are not privy to information regarding the number of cases or revenue related to cases assigned to other panelists. So in this matter, Judge Kennedy was not and is not privy to any case or revenue information related to Monster or any other company, law firm, lawyer, other than for his own cases. And even more importantly, I want to make the point that no shareholder distribution has ever exceeded a fraction of 1% of our total revenue in a given year. And I read a statement in Professor Stone's amicus brief that, quote, JAMS owners receive a share of up to 50% of fees from all arbitrations conducted by JAMS. It's just simply false. That's absolutely not true. And so I guess I also wanted to say, with regard to the disclosures that were made in this case at the outset, that all JAMS neutrals have a financial stake in the overall financial success of JAMS, combined with Judge Kennedy's disclosure about his own prior work with the parties or law firms involved in the arbitration here. And as a footnote, he had one prior arbitration hearing involving Hanson Beverage Company, Monster's predecessor, but that those disclosures fully complied with the law and were sufficient to put the parties on notice. Each side was free to make further inquiries at the time of Judge Kennedy's appointment and didn't do so. And the fact that Judge Kennedy has an ownership share in JAMS, which is not a party to the arbitration, shouldn't cause anyone to have a doubt about his ability to be impartial. And and at least one California court that I'm aware of has said that parties have an obligation to conduct due diligence at the outset of an arbitration about the arbitrator and can't sit back and wait until they get an unfavorable ruling to then challenge the arbitrator. Hopefully that's provides a little bit of context to the situation from our point of view. Sure. And the way you set it up is, I think, a a very good illustration of the two levels upon which this case uh, goes 
forward or, or works. Uh, on, on the one hand, reading the specific question at issue, whether the extent of a, a disclosure was sufficient, the notice that parties were put on in terms of any connections that uh, the arbitrator had here, Judge Kennedy, to um, the sorts of revenue or earnings he might see from from jams. Uh, that sounds sort of you know, narrow, much broader question, which seems to strike straight to the core of the, the issue in the practice of arbitration more generally, whether when you have big parties and large companies that go off into arbitration, if that sort of makes a skew and causes some weight to be placed on the scales in terms of the way arbitrators think of how their rulings might affect future revenue and, and the return of those large players. And so it seems like, you know, there's sort of two separate tracks here, one more narrow about this disclosure and one broader about just whether arbitration with large parties can be fair. Do you see that too? When you say large parties, are, are you referring to sort of large corporations, large law firms? Or, yeah, or high-paying law, corporations like Monster that, you know, a company like, like Jams would want to have as a repeat customer, not for any, you know, pernicious reason, but just as a company that wants to turn a profit, coming have them coming back. We want all of our clients, any company that comes to Jams to resolve disputes, to have a good experience with us. And that means that they get a fair, reasoned outcome in arbitrations, that the process is fair, and that it's fair to both sides. And um, without regard to, you know, we don't comp- have any control whatsoever over our neutral decision making and would, would never intercede in that for the purpose of trying to cultivate business with any particular firm, individual, company whatsoever. Just in terms of, I guess, the the nature of the disclosure, and you described it in your first answer. I mean, there's a part of the disclosure that says that neutrals like Judge Kennedy or ones that do not have an equity share in the company have a financial interest in you know the overall success of the company and being employed by jams in the future. So do you think that that, as just purely to the specific legal question here, conveys enough information to, to let the parties be on notice? that um, that sort of financial tie could be an equity share? Is that like sort of the core argument you think from, I know James is not a party to the appeal, but from Monster's point of view here? Well, I don't want to try to characterize any participant in the litigation, their point of view on this. Um, We believed that by including that broad statement, that that was enough to alert parties to ask questions if that was of interest to them, um, if they thought that that was important. And they didn't do so. And if, if, had they done so at the outset, we would have absolutely answered that question. So, you know, clearly we thought that it did, it was sufficient. I will note that for whatever this is worth, that in California, the, the legislature has um, promulgated pretty strict um, disclosure obligations for arbitrators in commercial cases and in consumer cases, mandatory pre-dispute arbitration clauses with individuals who are doing business with companies. And recently, they amended those ethics standards to require arbitrators to report whatever sort of business tie they had with the arbitration provider, like JAMS. They did deliberately, I have to assume, did not impose that requirement on in commercial arbitration. So the fact that the that the type of financial interest in the overall success of jams wasn't more specifically delineated, I don't really think would impact anybody's ability to assume that the arbitrator can remain impartial. I have to assume that exception there for 
the context of commercial arbitration is based on an assumption that the parties to it are a bit more sophisticated and so would be able to to read the disclosure like the one here and you know figure out their the, the ramifications of it yes and also that that those contracts are typically negotiated and you've got parties of equal bargaining power who are agreeing to arbitration one thing it seems to me that this appeal bumps up against is a another you know legal principle relating to arbitration that kind of the whole point of arbitration is it's supposed to be both quick and also final that you know you're getting out of court and you want to stay out of court. That's sort of the whole point of agreeing to arbitrate, and especially if you're talking about parties that are, you know, on relatively equal bargaining levels. So in your view, you know, what is the limit? What's the jurisdictional sort of boundary that courts have to step in to vacate awards? And, you know, how would you put it to restrict the court um, here? Well, I think Section 10 of the Federal Arbitration Act defines the grounds for vacating awards, a pretty, pretty narrow grounds, because I think everyone certainly the Supreme Court has recognized this and and parties who choose arbitration understand that the arbitration process provides a lot of benefits over litigation, including efficiency, speed, cost savings, flexibility in terms of timing. Parties have a lot more control over uh, what that process is going to look like. I wanted to speak about just a few exchanges that occurred at uh, oral argument earlier in, in July. Um, it seemed like there was a, a range of, of views, and some judges voiced questions that just suggested they could go either way. Um, but Milan Smith Jr. suggested um, at least once that um, you know you want it to be pretty clear to f- the folks that arbitrate, the parties that go into arbitration, that anyone overseeing the arbitration should be supposed to be neutral, whether they have a stake in whatever respect to the outcome, whether that sort of stake be a bit constructive if you're trying to figure out, you know, whether just having a stake in the company is having a stake in the outcome of a particular arbitration because it involves a party that you want to have as a repeat customer. I I guess, how did you take that question from Judge Smith or his overall sort of line of questioning? And, and had you, you know, been there, how would you respond to, to that sort of question? Well, I absolutely agree that if Judge Kennedy had a stake in either Monster Energy or um, City Beverages, then he should disclose that. But disclosing the specific terms of his financial relationship with Jams beyond what he did disclose isn't informative. Saying I'm an owner in the context of our ownership structure where um, he's not being incented financially in any way based on the outcome, based on whether you know a, a disgruntled you know, person who didn't um, prevail in an arbitration proceeding ever brings business back to Jams. And so... Because it's so different from a corporation or from a law firm partnership, it it doesn't make a difference in our view in terms of whether the arbitrator can remain impartial. Private arbitrators are compensated for their work. And in commercial cases like this one, each side pays an equal share. So there's no incentive for the JAMS arbitrator to rule in favor of one party or another. Okay. They're, they're, I'll, I'll go back to the fact that they, they, what they do have an incentive is, is to retain their reputation for being fair, even-handed, issuing reasoned awards, providing the parties with an efficient, fair process. And so that's their interest. Okay. You know, you sort of described that argument against one of the competing arguments on the other side here, that the repeat player problem incentivizes arbitrators to tilt results towards certain big-pocketed players. As you describe it, it does seem like the fact that you select a company to arbitrate disputes, the priority you think are... Um, one principal concern would be that the resolutions are fair. So it would seem 
difficult for a company or an arbitrator to skew the results in any way that would, over a period of time, show an unfairness that would you would think overall drive away business. Right. I mean, that, I think I think that's exactly what I'm saying. That they they have a, they have the arbitrators have an interest in in delivering a fair process and a fair result, not in any sort of you know future business that might or might not come from any of the sides to the arbitration. I mean, I think it's just it's just a not true that there's any connection between either party to this arbitration and Judge Kennedy or any other arbitrator other than his service as a neutral arbitrator in this particular case. Um, as I said, if he were a shareholder of Monster, he should have disclosed that. He would have been required to do that. But he doesn't have a stake in either company or the outcome of the dispute. And he doesn't know, he has no idea whether... Monster or City Beverage or any of the lawyers in this case have brought other matters to other jams neutrals because we don't provide that information to him, despite the fact that he's an owner. He, none of the jams neutrals get any information about about other business that's coming to the organization. They just they they, they focus on their individual practices. Judge Michelle Friedland sort of vo- voiced um, something more along those lines in su- supportive of Monster's point of view, saying you know the reality is of course arbitrators are getting paid, um, compensated for their time and their talents. She said, everyone knows they get paid. And I don't understand once you choose to, to go to arbitration, how you have an issue. It sort of strikes me that her point of view is whether or not the arbitrator, say, has an equity share or um, and still receives revenues or payment and through that avenue or simply is, is compensated based on the individual arbitrations that take place. The fact is, all those folks are financially interested in the company. And so we already know that. So, what's the problem? How do you? How did you read her uh, line of questioning? Well, I, I think you know. I think she makes a very good point, and uh, you know, I'll say that you know, parties choose arbitration for specific reasons, and it's you know, there's a lot of benefits. Probably not appropriate for every single case. Some cases, you know, parties you know probably want a litigated outcome, but in in when they um, at the outset of a business relationship choose arbitration, it's because they presumably want all of the benefits that it provides. And they know that the arbitrator is is going to receive compensation. And a good arbitrator, somebody who's doing this, you know, mostly full time, which most of the jams neutrals do, uh, their entire livelihood is based on the earnings that they receive from the uh, arbitrations or mediations that they preside over. So it, it's not a surprise. And you know, we have pretty strict uh, disclosure requirements so that if an arbitrator has arbitrated or mediated multiple times with a particular law firm or a company, the other side has an opportunity to know that. And we did, we made those disclosures in this case. So Monster and the beverage company received reports from Judge Kennedy about the work that he had done in the prior five years with anybody, and, and it did disclose that he had done a case with Hanson Beverage Company, um, and it and the parties were provided with information about that and the outcome of that case. So they were fully informed, and, and I think that given those disclosures, given the fact that this is a, a process that parties opt to, to use for efficiency and cost savings, that I, I just think that requiring a, the additional level of disclosure about the specific nature of the uh, contact between the neutral and jams or their financial interest in jams, I, I just don't think it adds anything. The third judge on the panel here, visiting Judge Michael Simon, sort of suggested that including such a disclosure isn't terribly demanding for the company or the arbitrator. He says it seems like a very simple thing to say, okay, I'm a part owner of jams. Is it 
a simple thing? Is it, you know, is, would it be easy enough to, to do that? Is, is there a reason that the disclosure, I mean, I'm sure there are many reasons that the disclosure is exactly what it is, but how would you respond to his idea that it would be easy enough for Judge Kennedy to say, hey, I have a part share in this company? Well, I think the problem is that people make assumptions about what that means, and, and they're incorrect assumptions. And I think if, if parties understood that, as I've described, the way that we're structured and um, the fact that neutrals aren't, um, they receive just you know very small allocation of you know whatever small amount of profit we might have at the end of the year, which, by the way, they don't receive for three years, so we, we hold that back for three years. Um, they're so, it's so attenuated. It's so, there's just no, I don't think it provides any additional, any additional information. It certainly doesn't suggest that they, for some reason, couldn't be impartial for all the reasons that I've said. And, and please also understand that the neutral, when he receives his, his profit distribution in three years, he has no idea where that uh, came from, what was the source of those profits, what companies used us, what law firms used us. It just, he just is not, he's just not provided with any of that information. So I don't see the connection between, you know, making a disclosure of that and, or, you know, there's, I think it's relying on this false um, understanding that the JAMS operates like a law firm where the partners get, you know, revenue credit for continuing business relationships with, with clients. That's just absolutely not how we operate. Is that sort of the the main core response to to the worry that overhangs sort of this whole appeal, the the repeat player problem that has been studied? I think there have been, uh, I think, a New York Times series and some law review articles suggesting that repeat players tend to do better in arbitration, especially ones that pay well. Is the is the response that you know if you structure a company in a certain way and you limit information flows to the folks that oversee arbitrations and um, limit the timing of payments and, and, and uh, revenues to those folks that it can be structured so that is uh, ameliorated. Is that the sort of the main response? It is. And that's, you know, we were very deliberate about that. We, we structured ourselves in a way that avoids any neutral having a financial incentive to favor any particular party. And if you look at, we focus on Monster Energy, well, they may have brought approximately 100 cases to jams during that five-year time frame, it's less than like 0.001% of our total caseload during that same time frame. So, because remember, we handled over 65,000 matters during that time frame. So no particular company or law firm has a significant impact on jams or an individual arbitrator's business to warrant that kind of incentive. And there's other studies that suggest that a lawyer's, a lawyer's experience, so the, the, the law firm or the lawyer that a person retains in an arbitration, is also a significant factor in the outcome of a dispute, which isn't surprising because experienced litigators or experienced arbitration counsel, you know, have, probably have, um, you know, are likely to win more cases or know when to settle before they actually go to a hearing. But I'll just can't emphasize enough that jams and our neutrals have, you know, a vested interest in preserving neutrality. It's a core fundamental value of the company. Do you have any sort of overall thoughts uh, on on the arguments as as they went and and it seems like there's at least a possibility that two or perhaps three judges could decide that the disclosure should have included um, the fact that Judge Kennedy had an equity stake and. Were the court to rule that way, what is the impact, the potential impact on 
on your company on jams um, if such a disclosure is required? Is the the main worry what you suggested that it would sort of scare off potential parties or it would cause folks to worry more than um, you said they need to about these connections? Uh, how how much would it impact uh, jams? Well, it's hard to predict, and and I'll just make a point that we deliberately avoid interceding in pending litigation, and we don't lobby legislators to enact laws or not enact, enact laws that affect our industry, because that's we believe that that's essential for us to remain neutral. But given that our business structure is not the same as a law firm or a corporation, and the fact that the neutral has zero incentive to, to rule one way or another, I think if that is understood by the parties, I really don't see that it would have a big impact. Um, but I, I'll make one point, which is Maybe an unintended consequence and a possible negative outcome is if arbitrators are forced to inquire of jams about other arbitrators' work with a company or law firm, that arbitrator is going to learn information they don't otherwise have. So Judge Kennedy went into this arbitration only knowing that he had conducted one arbitration with Monster's predecessor company, a fact that he disclosed to both sides when he was appointed. And I don't know how requiring him to learn that Monster had brought other matters to other jams neutrals especially when he's not informed about how his small share of profit distributions is derived, helps the process. But, we, you know, as I said, we deliberately avoid commenting on pending litigation to remain neutral. If a court or a legislature requires us to make these disclosures, we'll comply with the law. Okay. Staying neutral certainly befits a, a company of neutrals. Um, but I appreciate your time. This is Kimberly Taylor, Senior Vice President and Chief Legal and Operating Officer of JAMS. Thanks again. Thank you very much. Okay, before welcoming on Professor Catherine Stone to help articulate some opposing arguments here in the appeal before the Ninth Circuit over jams and the requisite disclosure requirements for neutrals that have equity stakes in the company. Let me remind you a couple of things. First, don't forget that CLE credit is very easy to get for having listened to this program. You can get one hour of California CLE credit just by going to dailyjournal.com, finding this show in our podcast library, taking a short to false test. It's linked on the page where the show is found. Doing that entitles you to one hour of California credit. And also just a bit of a cross-promotion here. The Daily Journal does plenty of other things besides a podcast about cases in the appellate courts. One of those things is publishing every Friday a, a large compendium of trial court cases, dispositions that have been rendered throughout the state and, and settlements that have been agreed to and arbitration decisions that have come down that are public. Um, that comes out in our verdicts and settlements section. And our, uh, our team here scours the various court websites and, and pages of uh, legal media to, to find those results, but also we are very happy to have them sent to us by you. So if you have a result you'd like to have included in the uh, the Friday verdicts and Settlements section, please get in touch with uh, with us here. You can find a link to submit that on our site at dailyjournal.com. Okay, uh, without any additional ado here, uh, Professor Catherine Stone authored an amicus brief with several other legal academics arguing that the given disclosure here was insufficient and merits reversal. She joins us now. Professor Stone, welcome to the podcast. Uh, thank you for having me. So uh, first off, let me uh, ask you just uh, broadly, how, how do you approach this case? How would you frame the question here or, or the central issue of this appeal? Well, the central issue here involves the uh, disclosure uh, required by a for-profit arbitration service provider when an arbitrator who's 
on a list to be selected by a party has an ownership interest in the for-profit arbitration service provider. In particular, you gathered uh, together a good number of uh, law professors, mostly who I understand teach and and write about the arbitration forum. Could you tell me just a, a bit about your interest in this case, in this specific issue? Well, I've been teaching uh, and researching and writing about arbitration under the Federal Arbitration Act since the early and mid-1990s. Uh, I started teaching originally about employment arbitration and then broadened it to the general issues involving the court's inter- Supreme Court's interpretation of the Federal Arbitration Act. As, um, as the Supreme Court became more and more deferential and to arbitration and supportive of arbitration, notwithstanding whatever kinds of contracts of adhesion or improprieties uh, were con- or inequalities between the parties uh, were present in a particular arbitration. The, uh, the courts adopted a, an extremely deferential approach at, starting in the 1980s, and I started uh, becoming aware of this through originally through some labor and employment cases, but as I say, then began to look at the whole spectrum of cases that were coming to arbitration under the Federal Arbitration Act. So I started teaching uh, the subject because I thought it was important for students to both understand the importance and the impact of arbitration clauses in contracts. I also teach contracts, so this is a frequent issue in contracts. And uh, I also thought it was important for students to understand the implications and also to be able to handle arbitrations as lawyers because lawyers are uh, very much a part of arbitration practice. Arbitration is a central part of law practice in many, many fields. And so I started uh, researching, following, and writing and teaching about it. It certainly seems fair to say that that trend of... um pro-arbitration positions in, in federal court and the Supreme Court has, has only become more pronounced since um, over, over the intervening years, I'd say. Yeah. I mean, it, what, what happened in the 1980s was that, that the statute, the Federal Arbitration Act, which had been a rather narrow statute that applied to a rather narrow range of cases that were in federal courts, uh, got expanded through interpretation to state courts. Through, through preemption rules, rulings, and then also got expanded from merely dealing with interpretation of contracts between parties to interpretations of statutory issues that arose in disputes. And so cases involving employment discrimination, cases involving uh, minimum wage uh, violations, cases involving consumer uh, claims that otherwise would have gone to court, now we're subject to arbitration if there was an arbitration clause anywhere in the contract between the parties. And so suddenly it became not a narrow niche problem or issue um, or realm in which parties um, agreed to a procedure for resolving a certain kind of dispute, but it rather became a mandatory and very often non, non-consensual non uh, forum for consumers and employees. Before we get too much further into the specifics of, of this case and this disclosure, uh, I just wanted to, to lay out the standard that uh, applies here. You know, obviously there's a pretty high bar for courts to step in and, and overturn arbitration decisions. The entire the point of the context is to avoid courts. So as you right. see, the rules, you know, how does the FAA or 
the Ninth Circuit approach uh, the issue of when to, to step in? Well, that's really the issue in this case, is when to step in. Courts are very reluctant, as you say, and and the principle is uh, that arbitration is supposed to be final. It, uh, the principle is arbitration finality, and moreover, the idea is that arbitrators, arbitration is at least thought to be more efficient and more economical and a faster way to resolve disputes. And so the idea was to keep courts away from it to prevent parties from having a second bite at the apple because that would undermine the goals of speed, finality, efficiency, and the like. So there's definitely a very strong uh, tendency, uh, proclivity for courts to refuse to overturn a complete uh, an arbitration award. It doesn't mean they never do it, but the statute itself, the Federal Arbitration Act, has very narrow grounds for overturning an award, and some courts had embellished those narrow grounds uh, with uh, some other standards that had a little bit more uh, flexibility to them, but the Supreme Court has uh, pretty well eliminated the non-statutory grounds that uh, some circuits, some courts had applied. And so all that, the, the grounds that are there for overturning the award are the statutory grounds, which, as you just suggested, are very narrow uh, and make it very difficult to overturn an arbitration award. Those statutory boundaries, notwithstanding, and those, those policy concerns uh, on one side of the ledger, you say that the court should step in here um, because of this disclosure. What is the, the core of that argument? Okay, well, the statute has, as I say, it has four statutory grounds. One has to do with when there was some kind of fraud or undue means in the, uh, uh, in the arbitration process. Uh, one has to do with when there's evident partiality or amongst the arbitrators. And one has to do with a refusal to hear evidence or to, pertinent evidence or to uh, postpone a hearing, uh, when they when they should have. And the the last one is where the arbitrator has exceeded their powers. Uh, the last one's a little vague, but the others are, and and that is still the meaning of that is still a little bit in play in the courts. But uh, here the relevant uh, standard is the evident partiality. Uh, the question is, was there bias in the part of the arbitrators? And that's very important because if you're going to submit your dispute to a, a private tribunal, or if you're required to do so, and if you're precluded from going to a court, at the very least, you want there to be a neutral decision maker. That's really the core due process concern in uh, any proceeding, and it's very important to preserve that and protect that in arbitration to retain some uh, integrity and some legitimacy for for the tribunal. You say that evident partiality factor is the is the one that is sort of triggered here. Evident partiality does, does that mean actual bias, actual partiality? No, it doesn't mean actual bias. And in fact, the the California courts and and others too have been very clear in saying that uh, there doesn't have to be actual bias. It's very hard to show actual bias, um, even if it's there, because arbitral arbitration proceedings tend to be informal. There is very rarely is there a record made. There's no way to really discern uh, what was actually said within the tribunal itself. And so actual bias is is, is a very evasive uh, kind of 
standard in most cases. And so what, what instead the courts look at is the appearance of bias, the possibility of bias, and whether there is uh, a likelihood of bias. And so those are the issues that the courts focus on when they're talking about evident partiality as a ground for overturning an award. In this case, then, the argument would go the fact that Judge Kennedy has an equity share in the company and the fact that Monster brings a lot of business to JMs. Ergo, Judge Kennedy could be biased to have that business continue to come to his company, and and there's your evident partiality. Yeah, I mean, the the argument is, and the concern is, that as an owner of jams, that, that Judge Kennedy, even if he had no actual bias in, in this case, he does receive a stream of income from every arbitration that is conducted under the auspices of jams between Monster Beverage Company and any other party, not just its, its franchisees, but any other party. So... Uh, of which there's a lot of arbitrations because Monster's a big company and there's a lot of disputes and under Monster's contracts, they all have to go to jams. So every arbitration that is conducted between any jams arbitrator and Monster yields revenue for jams of which a percentage goes to Judge Kennedy. So Judge Kennedy has an interest, a financial, a pecuniary interest in pleasing Monster and therefore will be uh, inclined, maybe not even consciously inclined, but, it, you know, to give the benefit of the doubt, to, to sort of tend to favor Monster in its decisions, rulings, interpretations, and construction of facts when those are in dispute. How much more significant or worrisome is that interest held by an equity holder as opposed to just a... a a general jams arbitrator who, as the disclosure does say, has an interest in the overall financial success and the ongoing viability of the company. I mean, every arbitrator, I assume, would like to continue to be employed by the company. And, and so if repeat players and, and, and repeat customers remain repeat customers, that would benefit any arbitrator there, whether or not they hold an equity share. So I guess, why is it such a big difference that uh, Judge Kennedy had a a partial share of the of the company. Well, let me go back a little bit to your question. Arbitrators aren't generally employed by the company. They're retained usually for a particular case. So your question is, I think, is uh, wouldn't all arbitrators want to curry favors with big businesses that might employ them again? Is that is that your well, question? Just the worry that you describe, it does sound like it yeah, could apply to arbitrators that don't necessarily have a equity share in the company, I guess. Well, arbitrators always want to keep, want to generate more business for them. Well, not always, but I think we can assume that arbitrators want to generate more business for themselves. That's for sure. What they get from business is their fees. So, so it's understood that arbitrators do have um, a financial stake in the sense that they're going to get a fee, but they get a fee. Doesn't matter which side they rule for, they get the fee in the case. And so, getting a fee from a case doesn't necessarily tilt them in favor of one party or the other. Um, now, it is true that if they're doing a case for a big company, let's say they're doing a case for American Airlines, 
uh, well, that's, yeah, that's a bad example because they have public arbitrations. Let's say they're doing a pe- case for General Motors. They might think, oh, good, if I rule for General Motors, I'll get more cases for General Motors. That's true. But, of course, General Motors has lots and lots of cases. So one arbitrator and one decision isn't really going to necessarily curry favor very much. It's sort of a little drop in the bucket of disputes that General Motors has and arbitrations that it has going on. And so even though they might, they, they're very unlikely to think that it's really going to affect their future business with General Motors. If it's all, if all the arbitrators are funneled into one particular service provider, such as JAMS, and they're an owner of JAMS, then there's something beyond the fee at stake. It's not just the fee in the particular case or the next case. It's rather that that by deciding in favor of the big company, in this case Monster, they're going to get something beyond not just the fee in this case or in any of the cases they do. They'll get a revenue from all of the cases that Monster would have before Jams, whether they are selected in the, or even uh, involved in them or, or not. So if there's a hundred cases that involve Monster and they're just arbitrating one of them, they'll still get revenue from the other 99. So they have a much more enhanced financial and direct financial stake in future business uh, with this particular entity, in this case Monster, when they have an ownership interest in the service provider. And that interest in, in retaining the future business of, of big companies is something that we've talked about a little bit so far and then is described by shorthand as the repeat player problem that you mentioned in your brief. And I guess more generally, just in terms of how that bears on you know, how folks think about arbitration and the, the impartiality of the, the forum, how big of a worry is it for academics like yourself that study arbitration? Well, uh, excuse me. I, I think we want to distinguish. The repeat player problem has been labeled, but in some ways the label's misleading because there's there's a couple of different types of repeat player problems. And in this particular case, I, in addition to the brief, I also submitted a declaration on this topic, which you may or may not have seen, where I try to parse out what um, – it's really being argued by the Olympic Beverage Company in this case. Um, because there's one kind of repeat player problem, which is the, the, the problem that people who are, who are frequently involved in arbitrations may be more successful than one-time people. So this would be, again, an employment situation. Someone feels that they've been subject to discrimination on their job. They have to go to arbitration because... It was part of their their contract, and so they've never been to arbitration before. They don't really know what to expect. They don't know how to handle themselves. They don't know what kinds of evidence would be uh, acceptable, and they don't have any idea how any previous cases have been decided or or even analyzed. Uh, So they go in naive, whereas the company has all of that information and has a lot more resources, maybe a lot more uh, money to spend on lawyers, and so they 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 go in as repeat players because they've done a hundred arbitrations, and this individual will only have one in their whole life. Okay, that's one kind of repeat player advantage. Now that you could argue uh, is is baked into the cake of arbitration. That is, when you have arbitration with uh, required for individuals, employees, or consumers, they're not going to have a lot of cases. 
Now, some people have shown that that may be true, but they may get a lawyer who's had a lot of cases. So maybe that could be countered by having a lawyer who has the experience, expertise, knowledge, uh, and the like to, to counterbalance uh, that. That's one kind of repeat player advantage. That's really not the kind that we're talking about here. Um, and you might even say that that, 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 that increase or uh, the superior expertise and financial resources are present all the time in litigation. And so, so that's not necessarily a reason to overturn an award or to object to arbitration. But that's not the kind of repeat player advantage that we're talking about. Now, the kind that uh, we're talking about here uh, stems from a second kind of repeat player advantage, which is when you have the same arbitrator doing a case for the same company over and over and over again, and and on the other side is a one-shot, one-time party who is dealing with this. So if it's not just arbitration in general that the more powerful party is familiar with, but is actually familiar with this arbitrator and has worked with this arbitrator, has brought cases and has the hope, has has held out the promise of bringing future cases to that to that arbitrator. Then the arbitrator might, in fact, feel ever so slightly inclined to please that party, to uh, render a judgment that is on the side of that repeat party. And there's evidence of that. That is, um, a co-author of mine in, uh, in another context has uh, conducted a very thorough study, which I lay out in my declaration that I mentioned, um, that has found, indeed, a significant repeat player effect when you have the same arbitrator representing one of the parties over and over and over again against individuals. Now, there's yet a third kind of repeat player effect that is what we're talking about here, which takes that second kind, what's called the repeat arbitrator effect, and says it's, when you have a shareholder in the service provider, then it doesn't even have to be the same arbitrator hearing a case for the, a particular party over and over over again. But if the arbitrator is a shareholder in the service provider and the service provider itself is handling a lot of arbitrations for a particular party, then that arbitrator will get a stream of income from all the cases, not just the ones that he or she uh, sits for, but all the cases that are brought by by or against that particular party and has an even stronger incentive to lean toward deciding in favor of that party. So that's the particular repeat player effect that is is operative here. It's really quite different from the first one that I was outlining. Certainly another effect, and this was described uh, by Kim Taylor, listeners um, have, have just heard from, be that, as it may, potentially subconscious incentive or you know, ap- actual incentive to lean decisions a certain way toward repeat players. The fact that those players come to certain arbitration companies at all is you know, based largely on the fact that that company has over a period of time sort of developed a reputation for holding these tribunals and these non-judicial forums as, as, in, a, in a very fair, objective way. I assume that you know a company like James would be 
would lose more if eventually they gained a reputation as, you know, tilting arbitrations toward repeat players than they would gain by doing it. Because eventually folks would say, okay, the company's not totally fair. We're going to look elsewhere. Well, reputation effects operate very imperfectly when you're dealing with private tribunals. I mean, it's one thing uh, to talk about judges and their reputations for being a certain kind of judge, you know, sort of strict constructionist or or somebody who's much more flexible in their in their approach to to various types of issues or or a hanging judge you talk about in the sentencing areas. For judges, you can look it up. You can find out, and everything that they do is a matter of public record. So you can actually look and see how they've decided things in the past. And um, and uh, with, whereas with arbitrators, you really can't. This is not public information. You really cannot find what uh, what particular arbitrators have decided or what what the cases were about in which they made their decisions so that you don't know how they actually, that is maybe they found for uh, one party a lot of times because the cases against that party were very frivolous, or maybe not, but you don't know with arbitration. The problem isn't that, you know, you can guess, you, you, everyone can have their their opinion, but if you don't actually know what, what the issues were, uh, what the evidence was like, uh, what the decision was, what the reasoning was in arbitration. That's the whole, uh, that follows from it being a private tribunal. And so these reputation factors don't really work very well in arbitration. There's really no way to find out um, how particular arbitrators have handled cases. And so I think that, that that's not, that's a very, very weak kind of check on the fairness of a particular arbitration. And so the issue in this case, in the monster case, to bring it back, and I think to to sort of address what you're getting at, is that the issue is really not, in general, is, is it a fair tribunal, but it's rather when the party is in the position of selecting an arbitrator, they should have this information, that that's what is being asked in this case, that, that Olympic's argument was that they were not given this information. They were not told that the arbitrator was had an ownership interest. And so they were instead presented with a list of arbitrators and a short biography of the various arbitrators and a little bit of information, but they were not told this particular piece of information, which could have been important to them in the selection process. Uh, we don't know. Maybe they would have said, you know, we've heard great things about this arbitrator, so we don't mind that it's an owner. That would be fair enough if they were given full disclosure. But the point is not to disqualify entirely arbitrators who are owners, but rather to just give the parties that information. We'll stay tuned for the, the Ninth Circuit's ruling in this case, but we'll leave it there for now. Professor Catherine Stone from UCLA School of Law, thanks for being on the show. Appreciate it. Okay, thank you. That's our show for July 26, 2019. I'm Brian Cardell. Hope you enjoyed it. Talk to you next week.